Welcome to the Context Matters Podcast. I am your host, Cindy Parker. I am an educator, explorer, writer, and speaker. I enjoy gathering around the table with interesting people who have different life experiences from me. And then we get to talk about God, Bible, theology, and other tangentially related subjects. Your voice is always welcomed around this table. You can reach out to me and let me know what you're thinking about through my website, narrativeofplace.com. Normally, you hear me at the end of each episode thanking my Patreon team for all they do. Recently, they helped me edit two entries for a new Bible study I'm writing. But they also make sure this podcast is sustainable. We are slowly closing out season four of Context Matters so I can regroup and dream of season five, host some interviews, and get to Israel. I think of this Patreon team all the time because people like Kathy and Scott Parker, Brett Emery, and Mindalyn Young have made all of this possible. People on this team come from the East Coast, West Coast, Midwest, and the South. They have Jewish, Protestant, and Orthodox Christian backgrounds. It pleases me to no end to have such diversity on my team. So thank you all. This week at the podcast table, we get to sit with Dr. Lynn Kohick. She is a New Testament professor at Northern Seminary, along with holding the responsibility of provost and dean of academic affairs. And also, she is leading the development of a new MA program in women's studies. What does that mean, you ask? Ah, well, we will get to that next week. This week, we are going to focus on Dr. Kohick's background and the context she has taught in and how that changes her perception of the Bible. Then we get to talk about the larger Greco-Roman context for women and how that should influence the way we read the Gospels. I started this interview with a question about what drew her into New Testament studies. Lean in and enjoy the conversation. I grew up a nominal Methodist, and so my family was moral growing up, and we went to church periodically, but I was not raised like my husband was, which was fundamentalist Baptist is how he would describe it. So I never learned that I couldn't do things, and I'm the firstborn, and my dad, and to a lesser extent, my mom, but she was also incredibly supportive, but my dad also sort of thought, well, you know, you're a human. You're not a girl or, you know, a boy, uh, but you're, you're a human who wants to do stuff. And so we were kind of free range kids growing up, if you will, you know, we, we just could do stuff. And so I never, I never was told you can't do that because you're a girl. And that became just incredibly helpful later on. I rode horses for, you know, years and years. And I think the equestrian learns a lot of courage, but also learns to be very attuned to the other, in this case, the horse. And uh, yeah, so I think that also was probably a growing up experience that helped me gain confidence the way that I am. But yeah, I really think, you know, and then I, I went to University of Pennsylvania. So that secular university for my PhD, again, they did not they just assume, yeah, women can do that. I mean, there's sexism, there's sexism everywhere, but it wasn't a religious kind of sexism. So I think I got far enough along in my journey without people saying I couldn't do it. The one exception was in my 
evangelical church that we joined, my husband and I, we met in this church and dated through college and then married. It was a evangelical free church. And this particular local church did have a real hesitancy for women holding any kind of position of leadership or teaching. So that was the place where I got the most resistance. <laughs> in your career, you have taught internationally in amazing places like the Sydney Opera House, like how on <laughs> earth, or a Maasai yeah. hut in Kenya. And mm -hmm. how do these opportunities fit this understanding the New Testament and teaching the New Testament? Right. Well, with the Maasai, we lived in Kenya for about three years uh, in the late 90s as my husband helped to build and then manage a pediatric rehabilitation hospital. He's a hospital administrator. And I taught at a local seminary in Nairobi, Nairobi Evangelical Graduate School of Theology. And on the weekends, a few times, we would go into the more rural areas. And I was able to do some teaching for these, you know, handful, two dozen Maasai, mainly women, a few old men through translator. Yeah, that was very moving and helped me to see, as well as I taught it at Negust, helped me to appreciate how much I rely in my interpretation of scripture on analogy. When I'm teaching scripture and I'm trying to get an idea across, I'll say, you know, it's like when you go to the grocery store and you have to choose between a couple of boxes of cereal. Well, I couldn't use that example because the way for what they ate and how they produced their food was so different. So it forced me to rethink how I'm teaching the word, how you sort of the mechanics, the pedagogy of it. It also helped me see things in scripture, like the importance of community, the praise of those older than you. I mean, we're a very youth culture here in the United States, but in Kenya, very much focused on the elders, both men and women, the older people were very much respected. So just, it opened my eyes to aspects of the biblical world that, you know, I'd kind of known from the pages of books, but now I was actually living it. So that was really great. The Sydney Opera House is an amazing story. I uh, had visited Australia at the invitation of my friend, Mike Bird, and did a uh, series of lectures and taught a, a class and then uh, gave a lecture. And while I was there, I also met John Dixon, who has become, he and his family, good friends. And they, at that point, John led what's called the Center for Public Christianity. And so I did a couple of interviews for him. And this fella who was principal of the Presbyterian Ladies College in one of the uh, local suburbs of Sydney contacted me and said, would you like to come over and do speech night for our school? And I literally was ready to delete the email as spam. <laughs> Who is this person? <laughs> what is speech night? What are you talking about? So, but I responded like, oh, could you give me a little information? You know, essentially speech night is just kind of like a commencement and an award assembly kind of rolled into one. It's a celebration. And in this case, this school had this event in the Sydney Opera House in one of their main, yeah, it was crazy. And 
So that was really fun to try and write something. You know, it wasn't academic. It was like what you'd say at a graduation kind of thing. And at the very end, as some of the young women, like almost grade school age, were leaving, they said, oh, thank you for coming. And we just love your accent. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I thought, wait a minute, I don't have an accent. You do, you know? <laughs> I love being over here in Australia. You guys sound so cool, you know? <laughs> so, yeah, so that it, it's been fun to have traveled through so many different communities, taught the word of God. I always learn from the students and their perception of God's word. Because you're right, it it meets us in our context. It has its own context in the ancient world, but we interact with it through our own context, with our own questions. There is something so extremely valuable about spending time in other countries with people who have different lifestyles and different worldviews. It makes you realize the importance of choosing your analogies carefully, as Dr. Kohik mentioned earlier. But it also gives you real-life examples of things in the Bible that maybe you've overlooked. It can be really hard for us to have an imagination to see different cultural attitudes and societal functions until we see it play out in real life. So I asked Dr. Kohik if her time with people who respect their elders or who are not technologically obsessed influenced her views on the Bible. I would say, first and foremost, I think what made such an impact on me was the dedication of the pastors that I taught and that I met locally to a life of almost poverty, I would say, because the it's, it's a very difficult way to earn a living. And they embraced it with such incredible joy. I remember one woman saying to me, her parents just did not want her to marry a pastor because the family would never have money, you know, and she did marry a pastor. But I would say their passion for God's word and the commitment, it's also the commitment to pray. You know, youth group wasn't a pizza party. It was, let's pray for a couple of hours, right? Or maybe even all night. That inspired me. I don't know how else to say it. it. It inspired me. The other thing that probably impacted me a lot was the polygamy that was present, if you're talking about the biblical world, coming from families where there were multiple wives. And so you you had several mothers, if you will, you know, that I obviously never had that sort of thing. So it was a, it was a different family structure. And the, the importance of women being married, this was out in the rural area. And this, as I say, was in the nineties. There was a sense in which if you were a young widow, it would be important for you to remarry. And I think that lived experience of those Kenyan women was very close to the lived experience of the women that we see on the pages of the New Testament or within the Greco-Roman world. In your book where you're explaining the life of women in the Greco-Roman world, there's I mean, it's so nice because you paint the wider picture and then say, okay, how did Jewish women fit into that? Okay, how did Christian women fit into that? And it was so helpful. One of my big takeaways when you first published that book was recognizing that there's a lot of hierarchies in society, and it's not just the patriarchy, which we we tend to just refer to the patriarchy, but it's not just that. It's There are other things that create 
differences and hierarchies among people, status being one of them. And I was hoping maybe you could speak to that a little bit. And then how does status contribute to what people can and can't do? And then how does status and, and like patriarchy fit in, in the hierarchy? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think the patriarchy is that kind of fancy sounding word of uh, men ruling over women. And that, you know, in the abstract, that is what Aristotle would have said, that a woman is a lesser human, kind of ontologically, right? But how it lived itself out, there were male free men who were over male slaves, right? So patriarchy isn't simply about, or in the construct as it lived itself out, it, it was about power and domination by men over others, but the others weren't always women. And that's where the complexity, as you point out, really comes in. The social structure was highly stratified. So I'm trying to think again of analogies or parallels here. Um, I was a big fan of Downton Abbey, you know, mm-hmm. that series years ago. And they, boy, it seemed like you just had to know who an earl was and a duke and a lord and a then even downstairs, so to speak, you had the first footman, second footman, and you had the valet and the, whoa, whoa, you know, the valet is yeah. not going to, and no, who knows where the governess ever went, right? <laughs> so, you know, that, but everybody knew there, they all knew where it fit. And there was social worth that was connected with that and where you fit in. And did you marry above yourself or, you know, just those kinds of things. And that I think is maybe a helpful parallel to the first century world with the stratified culture that is tied tightly to social worth. We talk about the institution of slavery, which is a legal institution, and you can have freed men and women, so they are no longer slaves. They fit into this middle category. Nevertheless, that middle category, though they are free from slavery technically. Nevertheless, on their body, they bear the marks of their slavery, so physically. And even socially, they still are connected to their owners now kind of as a client. So they still require permission for certain things from their previous owners. And so, you know, I'm just trying to kind of create this picture of complexity that feels very complex to us. And I think when you live in it, it kind of can feel a little more natural because you're so used to all the nuances and details. I keep mentioning social worth because I think that is one of the areas where the Christian gospel just shone a bright light Hmm. because the claim of the gospel is that every person has infinite value in God's eyes and has great worth. And so the writers like Paul and Peter are trying to create these communities that include slaves and freed people and freeborn and men and women and all of this together as though each person, their true identity is as a being of infinite worth to God. That was not an easy thing to do (laughs) in that culture, but that's one of the, probably the biggest thing, this idea that you have an inheritance. Every single believer has an inheritance. They're co-heirs with Christ. 
that cut across all of the patriarchy and social hierarchy of the day. Yeah. Yeah. You wrote a commentary on Ephesians and my church here in Philadelphia finished a series teaching through Ephesians and it gave me an opportunity to grapple a lot more with the New Testament since I hang out naturally in the Old Testament, but struck so hard with in Ephesians how the mind bending pulling Jew and Gentile together just different backgrounds. For me, I think of it in terms of they have such different land telling them stories. How are they supposed to come together and and own a similar story together? And I think that like mind-bending nature of what Paul is trying to do in those kinds of epistles, we miss it when we get really focused on, but Paul mentions slaves and Paul mentions men are the head of the woman. You know, we kind of flatten it to those things and then we try to explain that. In writing Ephesians, when you get to those household quote codes and you're trying to unpack for a modern audience what a stratified society is trying to be led into by Paul, how do you do mm-hmm. that? Yeah, well, and I'm glad you mentioned the Jew Gentile because Paul does in chapter two of Ephesians, he brings up Jew Gentile as that one new humanity that out of the two, Christ created one new humanity, Anthropos, the human. And it's only in Christ that the two come together, but he uses body language. And I think that's really helpful, this metaphor of body that Paul uses a couple of places and because it's organic and it all has to work together. And we know, I know, like if I get a splinter in my finger, that's all I think about. Right. And it's just this wee little thing in my little finger, but it's all consuming. And so in the same way, if we can imagine the local church having that same kind of interconnectedness, well, all the pieces have to fit. And that's, uh, I think that's the brilliance of his, model of the body. And in chapter four, then he talks about how the body matures together, how, you know, you've got the bones and the muscles and the sinews and all of that growing together for the body to be mature and functioning. So there's a real dynamism to his picture of the uh, church. And I think we lose that when we start into the household codes, if we are thinking, as you mentioned, a sort of propositional hierarchy, who gets to say what when, you know, so that that's one thing that I would mention as people approach the household codes is to remember that there's five and a half chapters before them and that they're very important. They <laughs> set the stage. You know, it's not just the husband is the head as though this came out of the blue. It's been right. throughout the rest of the epistle. He's been building on this metaphor. And then I sometimes when I teach this, I start actually with chapter six and the discussion of slaves and owners. And I do so because today we know the right answer, right? We know that the institution of slavery should be abolished, that it has no place in our world today. And so we know that as we then read through this passage, we're able, I think, or we're more attuned to see where Paul opens that possibility up. So he talks to the slave, he addresses the slave. Peter does that as well, but nobody outside the New Testament at this time, so none of the Greco-Roman authors 
are talking directly to slaves. But Peter and Paul, when they write their letters and those letters are read in community, there are slaves, maybe 20% of the community are slaves and they are being addressed. So it's a honoring of the slave more so than any other group at this time would do. And then I encourage people to read what I've written because it's pages and pages of trying to set this up in context. But let me just jump to the end where Paul says to the owners that God shows no favoritism, that both the slave and the owner have the master in heaven, and that master shows no favoritism. And to me, that's a shot across the bow by Paul, because the institution of slavery was based on favoritism. The whole system was based on domination, and that you as an owner had the right to dominate over another human. You were the favored one, and that favor allowed you to dominate another. And I think Paul just wipes that out. God shows no favoritism. So the the foundation should be crumbling at this point. When we see, when we're, we are willing to admit that there are cultural complexities, as Paul discusses slavery, I don't think it's helpful to say he's really just talking about employer, employee, because there's a whole lot of difference between our modern employer construct and slavery. Not the least is, of course, the person's body was owned and sexually used. And was legal. I mean, this happens in the workplace today, but it's illegal and we don't approve of it. So it's sort of like we can see how culture affected Paul in this category, but we're unwilling, I think, at times to see it in the discussion of marriage that starts the household codes. And so what I I like to unsettle people enough so that when we go to the marriage passage, they're kind of questioning, oh, okay, yeah, maybe what I thought was hmm. simplistically true actually is a little bit more complex. So that's that's how I try to approach it. If you'd like to have a thoughtful perspective on Ephesians that brings all the geographical and cultural context to bear on the text, I recommend Dr. Kohick's commentary. And next week, we're going to talk about how understanding the freedom and restrictions that Gentile women had in contrast with Jewish women will also change how we understand Paul's writings about gender roles. Thank you for sitting with us around the podcast table. And a very special thanks goes again to my Patreon team. I produced this episode. Luke Bronner of Milieu Media Group did the edits and the final mix. And Peter Lordson of Sycamore Sound created the music. I look forward to our conversation next week. Until then, be safe, take care of each other, and stay curious about the world around you. 